ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. From Christianity Today, you are listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, director of CT Media, and I'm joined by Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today on the show, we're going to be talking with pastor and author Jamal Williams to talk about pastoring a multi-ethnic church in the aftermath of the death of Tyree Nichols. We're going to talk about psychedelics and spiritual curiosity. And then we're going to talk about Dr. Phil and the end of an era of a certain kind of tough love. And that's in quotes with a question mark. So on January 7th, Tyree Nichols was stopped by the police for suspected reckless driving. That accusation's actually been contradicted by the chief of police who reviewed the footage. But nonetheless, the officers on the scene chose to arrest him. The situation escalated. More officers arrived on the scene. And the conflict ended with them violently beating Nichols with fists and batons. He was taken to the hospital where he died three days later. You know, in the aftermath of this, that night they were suspended. A week later, an investigation was announced, and then on the 20th, they were fired. On the 26th, they were charged with aggravated assault, number of other crimes, and second-degree murder. And then on the 27th, the city of Memphis released the body cam and surveillance footage of this arrest and assault. You know, this whole thing has been gruesome, and it once again puts the issues of police brutality and race in America on the front burner of our conversations. So... To discuss these issues, we've invited Jamal Williams to join us today. Jamal is the lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown, a multi-ethnic church in the urban core of Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the co-author of In Church As It Is In Heaven, Cultivating a Multi-Ethnic Kingdom Culture. He holds a doctorate of ministry in Black church leadership as well. Jamal also was one of my pastors a few years back when we were living in that neighborhood. So obviously I know quite a bit about Jamal and vice versa. And one of my students. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm grateful uh, you could be with us, Jamal, um, and to talk both pastorally and personally about some of these questions. Thanks for joining us on The Bulletin. Hey, it's my joy. Thanks for considering me for such a weighty and important topic. I'm curious if we could just begin. I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on, you know, having heard this story, how it affected you, especially when you first heard about it. It was one of those moments where you just say, oh, man, this is happening again. And this mm. is going to be a complex two weeks, and I'm going to have to make space myself to mourn, to grieve, um, and then to prepare to lead people through such an unfortunate situation. Jamal, do you think so many uh, friends that I know in ministry who are 
like you in multi-ethnic spaces say that it's exhausting when another incident like this happens and they're trying to explain to white churchgoers why this is so important and why this isn't just a, well, if somebody had just done what the police had asked, then this wouldn't have happened, that sort of uh, rationalization. Do you find that to be the case? And if so, how do you navigate through that? Yes, absolutely exhausting because it's Mm -hmm. so layered. And I think the thing that a lot of people miss is that whenever this happens, and whether it's a white police officer who does police brutality or a group of black police officers for uh, most African-Americans in this country. And I say most because it's not all, we're not a monolith, right? But for most of us, this is connected to just the historical reality. It takes us back not only to slavery and Jim Crow, but to situations that happened in Tulsa, to riots and things that happened because of police brutality in both Oakland, Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, all over, and they're all connected. And so, yeah, it can definitely be exhausting and you have to be prepared for the conversation. I think that we have at Midtown been able to do some deeper work over the last six years. We've been able to have some collaborative conversations, to use a term by uh, my dear friend George Yancey, and to learn how to have those conversations in a more helpful way. And I think the thing that has probably helped more than anything is just to remind ourselves that everyone who is involved in situations like this and who is watching situations like this has a story. The black community, black and brown communities, we have a story here in America. And because we have a story, um, when things like this happen, white Christians need to be very aware of that and learn to lament with black and brown people, recognizing that we have a vantage point and we have experiences that lead into how we perceive this and how we move forward. Mm -hmm. But it's also important, I think, for as we are doing that to remember that, hey, man, police officers have a story, right? white police officer in our congregation, which I had to learn because I turned a lot away earlier on when talking about this issue, have, have a story. They have a reality. And I want to learn their reality and to not uh, just brush with such a broad stroke that I indict um, women and men who are serving well and wanting to be salt and light for Jesus in these spaces. And that's a really difficult line to walk but it's one that you have to learn to do well, to not minimize what happened, to enter into that pain, to grieve, to lament, to protest appropriately, as well as to make sure that we are understanding the complexities of this and speak about it in a way that does not lead to more violence. You know, we're here in Louisville, Kentucky, and we experienced a couple years ago the death of Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Through that, two police officers got shot. Seven protesters, and um, one was killed, a popular owner of a barbecue restaurant here in Louisville, Kentucky. And so if we don't learn how to have this conversation in a way that is both honest and civil, we can be inciting uh, things where a lot of well-meaning people on each side get hurt Mm -hmm. and and possibly even lose their life. You know, when when this stuff comes up and Christians are trying to address it, like everything else, it's polarizing. And... What you see oftentimes, you know, because part of what you're talking about is the nature of sin, the nature of evil in terms of how these things take place. So in the polarization, you sort of see this breakout into camps where people start to talk about this is a systemic issue. This is, you know, systemic racism. But then on the other side, there's often an, an emphasis on, you know, sin is a matter of personal responsibility. The sort of cliched response of, well, not all cops, you know, not all police officers. And of course, there's like, 
there's truth <laughs> to the fact that it's not all police officers. But I'm curious, is, is your congregation polarized in those ways and how you've navigated some of that language and, and what ends up simplifying, uh, oversimplifying some of these issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, honestly, I think I would say that we were polarized in that way. And I think I'm sure that there is some polarization that's still happening. To be honest, like since 2020, we've got so many new people and we're just kind of starting these conversations back up in a in a more uh, nuanced and direct way. Uh, one of the things I found most helpful when I came and started having these conversations in majority white settings was like sitting down, like giving them resources and educating them on not only police brutality, but just on basic history. A lot of our, our schools have kind of glanced over that. And uh, I think it's hurt a lot of white Christians because they don't have education. But knowledge is not the answer either. I think for Christians, it's helping them to see that the biggest problem is that there's a gap in our love. And a lot of mm-hmm. times there's a gap in our love because we think by facing reality is somehow going to hit our, our personal identity. And it's going to make us have to rethink maybe our family's identity and our grandparents' identity. Russell, your newsletter this week, you're talking about some of these issues and in particular, some of the dynamics of power and the abuse of power. I wonder if you could sort of bring that into the conversation here and and how you're seeing these things at work, both in these stories of police violence and the way they reflect in other places in our culture. You know, I was thinking about when one of these horrific incidents happened, a police officer, a friend of mine, was saying to me, you just don't understand how angry this makes me at the police brutality itself because I understand what's going on. I'm watching this and I can see, I see what you're doing and that's not what we've been called or authorized to do. And I thought about it, you know, I I think I get what he's talking about because There are so many cases when I look at these high-profile pastors who are abusing their authority, either in terms of manipulating people out of money or, I mean, any of the uh, the things that we've seen, there's an anger that's just a human anger toward that, but then it gets ramped up quite a bit because I'm able to say, I, I actually know what it is to vow to be in ministry and to use the, the name of Jesus Christ, and I can see what you're doing with it. And so I think the reason that this hits so hard when we're dealing with police brutality is not because all police officers are like this or even most police officers are like this, but because it's the use of a power Mm. that preys on vulnerable people and erodes trust in the very sorts of structures and institutions we need to protect us from this. And that's a really old issue. When John the Baptist is preaching and the soldiers and the tax collectors come up and say, we want to repent, what do we do now? John doesn't say, well, this is your personal life. It doesn't have anything to do with your responsibilities. Instead, he turns around and says, no, this has to do with how you wield power. Don't extort money from people. Don't threaten people. Don't do these things. And that's part of the issue here. And so when we look at what do we need to do? I think it's multifaceted. I mean, I think part of it is what Jamal just said. In churches, we have to have this understanding that we bear each other's burdens. So white people need to care about this, not just black people. And also that we have this understanding that the personal and the structural both matter. 
structures determine what kind of persons we have and persons determine what kind of structures we have. So we have to have mm -hmm. both of those things and move forward. And that otherwise we're just going to continue to be right back here. I think what you just said is so critical that, that structures form people, right? Institutions are supposed to form us and to do the work, you know, that the institution is charged with in a way that's virtuous and, and in service to those for which the institution exists. And it is Part of what struck me, the police have this motto, you know, to serve and protect. And I immediately thought about the fact that when somebody goes into politics, the language people often say is that, you know, they're in public service. Mm -hmm. And then the metaphor extends to pastors as well, like the Jesus metaphor for Peter when he commissions him as the guy who's going to sort of take the lead in the church in the book of Acts is feed my sheep. And then, of course, Jesus himself washing the feet of the disciples as a, as a way to model this for him. Is there something that's happened that we can point to in terms of a breakdown of the idea of service as virtue, service as something to aspire to and to take pride in, rather than what seems to be happening, which is in these various spheres of culture, people indulging in a power, aspiring to the power, aspiring to indulge in the sort of worst impulses, whether it's the violence in an organization literally called, you know, the Scorpion unit, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or what we see again and again in pulpits and politicians. Well, I'm drawn to a uh, Brian Kloss uh, in his book, Corruptible, uh, last year, talks about uh, recruiting of police officers. He, he's dealing with the whole subject of recruiting anybody who's going to be using power. And, and he says, what you have to do is not just to hold accountable people who use that power badly, but you have to recruit people who are not motivated by the power itself. And so that means that the problem when you look at, at a situation like this, these bad police officers using power badly, it's not just how do you deal with them, but how do you also recruit the people who may never even consider that maybe God would have me to be serving in a police force precisely because they don't want the power over other people. They genuinely want to serve. And that's harder to do because that means that you're actively going out and recruiting in the genuine sense of not just taking in people who want to do this, but persuading people that they actually have the gifts and ought to do it. And that's one of the reasons why the whole defund the police sort of thing is so crazy is because part of the problem is not that police departments have too much money. It's that in, in many cases, they don't have enough with enough training and with, not, with enough recruitment of the kind of people who really do understand my community is the entire community in front of me, not just my ethnic or racial group. I think that that's going to take a lot more intentional effort. And it's something we can see. We ought to see this in the church. We've got the same issue in many ways with ministry, just with a different kind of power. I do think that this is a conversation that we also have to have in our community. So like, what does policing look like? Um, are we able to get people on the ground to actually know their community, to have relationships as well? I wonder if, if from either one of you, you know, this is uh, an issue that really took center stage about a decade ago, I believe it was, that Trayvon Martin was killed. You know, since then, you've had so many of these stories. And of course, 2020, the death of George Floyd. And, you know, part of the reason that's on our consciences is because of the fact that technology's made it unavoidable body cams, the cell phones, all of those different advancements. Do you think we're in a better place with this conversation today than we were a decade ago? Or 
as I often hear anyway from activists and, and concerned parties, it hasn't gotten any better. Nothing's changed. I don't think that we're in a better place. Uh, I grew up in the 90s. I remember watching a TV screen with my father when uh, the Rodney King situation happened. And so in many ways, I, I, I don't in terms of just society as a whole. In a weird way, I hope that we are in the church. I hope that churches are making, um, are growing and having this conversation as a whole, but I'm not as hopeful about that either. I think we might be in some ways in a better place as a society, just because there might be more of an awareness, at least in some sectors of American life, as to what's going on. But I think we're in a worse place in the church particularly in the evangelical church, for exactly some of the reasons that we're talking about right now. Because whenever this happens, the main thing right now that tends to show up on the minds of leaders is how do I navigate the potential white backlash to this, Mm -hmm. rather than how do we appeal to the consciences of our people in order to stand together. And in that sense, I've seen, you know, Jamal and Timothy Jones have a have a new book uh, coming out on this uh, issue of multi-ethnic church. And there was a time 10 years ago when there really did seem to be a new move happening when it came to a, a multi-ethnic unity within the church. And now I sense this great exhaustion from people who are just saying, we just, we can't do it. And you step back and you say, well, wait a minute, we can't, we can't give up on Ephesians too, mm-hmm. but it has ground people down. And I think in many ways within the sectors of evangelicalism, where there is either a white majority or a large white presence, we're probably in a worse place than we were mm-hmm. during Trayvon Martin. Jamal, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that was part of the burden of writing this book is believing that the people of God can do better. And that part of it is we we have to help people to see these realities. And so we try to write a book and I'm trying to do ministry in a way that's holistic, that, that's biblical. And that kind of has this almost this Augustinian framework where we're saying, hey, man, sin impacts us in ways that we do not know. We need to slow down and we need to know our story and see how sin is embedded in each of us and how we create these systems and we structures. Also, by teaching people to have the conversation in a way that is honest but not inflammatory. Hmm. And I think that even within the church, sometimes we miss each other right away because we're we just don't listen and we're not having... Uh, these type of collaborative conversations that uh, we need to have and that's necessary to have. But I, I believe that even though we are more divided than uh, than ever, that there's still hope for the church because we have uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we truly go deep and delve deep into uh, this whole gospel, then it'll, it'll shape us to be whole people and we can live out these habits or these liturgies that can make a real impact on the ground. So I'm not Given up on the church as much as I've been hurt by her and uh, bewildered by her, uh, by God's grace, I've been able to see the Lord change white people and white Christians and <laughs> and them join in on being able to lament and to want to see change and apply what they've learned in specific ways. At the same time, I've seen a lot leave who are unwilling to do the work. And I've seen in, in the same way a lot of uh, black and brown people uh, leave because of the hurt that happened. Um, and sometimes it was a result of their um, 
I, I think things could have been handled on their end as well. So I'm, we're trying to find that balance to say, how can we grow in this conversation to take the next step? Because remaining divided as the people of God, uh, according to John 17 and uh, Ephesians 2 and 3, is not an option. You know, one of the best examples I've seen of a congregation handling a, the aftermath of a situation like this, I don't even remember which of the situations it was. I just know, I know there was the shooting of an unarmed young black man. And there also was a police shooting that happened around the same time. And this congregation had, I believe it was the chief of police of their local police department, get up and offer a prayer for justice for unarmed black men who were being uh, unjustly shot and lamenting this injustice. And they had an African-American mom of uh, several young black men get up and pray for police officers. Mm-hmm. and for godly, just police officers and for their safety. And it sent a signal to the rest of the congregation, we actually are bearing each other's burdens, Galatians mm-hmm. chapter mm-hmm. 6, in a way that was beautiful. Now, I think if we, if we saw that more, we might, yes. see, we might see more change. Yes. It's a journey, and it's a calling. And a large burden is placed on uh, white Christians to do the work to be curious, to to learn, and just to love. Like I said, I'm convinced that the gap is not in our knowledge as much as it is in our love. Well, Jamal, thank you so much for making time for this conversation and for your work. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. And we hope that the Lord blesses it. And uh, I especially do for the sake of the city that I live in. So thank you. Thank you for making time with us. Jamal, and your new book is fantastic. I've read it. Uh, Tell people uh, what the name of it is and when they can see it. Yes, it's In Church, As It Is in Heaven, Creating a Multi-Ethnic Kingdom Culture. And it is available for pre-order now and will be uh, released on uh, June 13th. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so for the last several years, there's been this growing interest in psychedelic drugs from those within the scientific and psychiatric community. Doctors, scientists advocating for research for the treatment of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, even aging and memory. For some people, these have worked like miracle drugs. And I know this with people that I know dearly who've seen those kinds of effects. And while this is you know, a growing area of research within the academic and scientific community. It's also been on the rise in more sort of, let's call it recreational use. Some states are considering the legalization of some of these drugs. 
This week, Richard A. Friedman, a professor of clinical psychiatry at Vile Cornell University, had an article in The Atlantic about all of this. The title is Psychedelics Open Your Brain, You May Not Like It, What Falls In. Generally, what he's talking about is this idea of neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to be reshaped and rewired. And what he's saying in the article is that can be great in certain circumstances. But then he says this, he says, the effect is a bit like putting a glass vase back in the kiln, which makes it pliable and easy to reshape. Of course, you can make the vase more functional and beautiful, but you might also turn it into a mess. Russell, let's just start at the very beginning of this topic. What do you think about the ethical use of these drugs, both in the lab and in the real world? Well, I think it's really similar to ketamine uh, use, for instance, which recreationally is a huge problem, especially in the United Kingdom and other places, but can be used in terms of treating severe depression, mental illness in various ways, but it has to be regulated in that way. I mean, there are all, there are all sorts of medications and tools that when they're properly regulated and hemmed in can be good. And I think some of the psychedelic drugs that we're talking about uh, can have those uses, and, and we ought not to refuse to use them just because they can be abused in that way. But I'm more concerned about this broader attempt to use psychedelics and other gateways to having transcendence and spiritual experience in a secularized time. I mean, I was talking to an atheist acquaintance a year or so ago, really, really dogged sort of naturalist atheist uh, guy and a brilliant uh, person. And he had started to use LSD and other psychedelic drugs, mushrooms and that sort of thing. And he's telling a group of us, most of us Christians, that, uh, you know, you can't believe how great it is because it's like you've been living in a house all your life. And then someone comes in and takes the roof off the house, takes you all around the world, and then puts you back in. He said, and I'm able to see the spiritual aspects of reality. He said, and for me, afterward, I'm kinder, I'm gentler. He said, it's the equivalent of being born again. And uh, <laughs> I, I had to say, yeah, but, it, but it's not real. I mean, you don't even think it's real. You, you think that it's doing something to your brain chemistry. You're not actually touching anything that's transcendent. And I was really interested in that, just thinking about that later on, that for him, there had to be some way to get out of the box. And, and this was the way he was attempting to find it. And I just think that is a bankrupt way. You know, part of what this rubs up against for me that's interesting is, you know, I've heard stories of people I know who do the whole pilgrimage to you know south america and do the ayahuasca thing yeah. with the with the guru and it's a, it's that's what the whole experience is designed for mm. and so there's part of me that hears these stories and because i've been interested in some of this and, and read about the neuroplasticity it's like okay i get the science of it right mm -hmm. as a sort of material explanation but also there is an unseen realm, and there are elements to the descriptions of these experiences that make me wonder, not that these would be positive spiritual experiences, but what is the spiritual element of it? What is the element of it that you can't map on an MRI? Why yeah. is it that people come out of these things and say, I touched the face of God? You know, yeah. Is that purely yeah. like triggering certain synapses you can't get at it in, in other ways, or is there something deeper going on here that as Christians, we need to be attentive to for all kinds of reasons. 
one of the things that this friend said to me is, is I finally understood Aztec religion. He said, because the figures that I would see when I'm on these trips are essentially identical with Aztec gods. He said, and I didn't see the Aztec gods until after I had already experienced it and I recognized them. And so he's putting this all together with psychedelic use by ancient Aztecs. And you step back and say, yes, but maybe what you're dealing with here is in a darker reality than we know. Even secular people are recognizing now is that the universe is just a lot weirder and a lot more unpredictable than they thought. And who knows where this can ultimately lead. Ross Douthat had a piece in the New York Times this week that I thought was really a brave piece just because I can imagine the sort of response that Ross is going to be getting from his readers, which is to say, you know, there are all of these emerging spiritualities and a lot of us can recognize how, say, the old New Age spiritualities often ended up being a grift at best and sometimes ended up being actually abusive. But have we considered you might be inviting things in that you don't know about and that you don't want? And that's a really difficult question for people in a hyper-secularized age to ask, but it doesn't mean it's a bad question to ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, as you well know, and you've written and worked on this quite a bit, there's a way to go overboard with the sort of satanic panic. You know, we both lived through that. <laughs> oh, you, you know, you're reading Lord of the Rings. That means you're getting in touch with the devil or you're, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, in my church, it was, you know, you start with Amy Grant and next thing you know, <laughs> you're, you know, drawing pentagrams of blood it's on the Madonna, ground. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that actually, I mean, that, that came well, get, will go way too far, but there are spiritual realities that we shouldn't be playing around with, I guess. Yeah, I read the Douthat piece as well. I thought it was fascinating too. Essentially, what he says in the piece is there's sort of three examples that he's noticed of kind of emergent religious curiosity. Psychedelics is one of them, some of this new age stuff with like horoscopes and you know manifesting. Mm-hmm. The manifesting one cracks me up. Um, Maria Bamford, stand-up comic, has this great joke where she talks about she put a vision board in her kitchen. You know, make your vision board and believe in it and they're going to happen in your life. And one of the things she had on her vision board was a microwave because she needed a microwave. Her sister comes over and is looking at the vision board and goes, you got a microwave on here? And she's like, yeah, I need a microwave. She goes, I'll buy you a microwave. And and Maria goes, yes, manifested. but but one of the things he talks about is this statue that was erected on top of a courthouse in New York. And it's it's an interesting thing. People should look it up. It's it's this sort of feminine-ish image emerging from a lotus flower. It's wearing, I didn't notice this until he pointed it out, it's wearing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's sort of laced collar. What struck me about that point in particular, you know, in the late term of her life, there were all these like t-shirts, knickknacks, coffee mugs. There -hmm. was like the saint candle, you know, with her image on it. People really idolized her in a pop way and an almost a quasi-religious way. To see this image, this statue erected that has sort of references to her, but has the lotus flower as a spiritual symbol and, 
you know, he calls it an icon. I, to me, I looked at it as like, I think the right word is this is a pagan idol of, of mm-hmm, sorts. Mm-hmm. And point being that there is this constant tension in the human heart of living with this secularized imagination, but also the heart wants what the heart wants, and the heart wants something meaningful and something transcendent. Well, it just it goes to show that it really is true that secularization doesn't lead to just a subtraction of spirituality, as Charles Taylor pointed out. It often leads to a hyper-spirituality and a replacement of religion with something else. There's a book out, I will put it in the show notes, I can't remember the name of it right now, I just read it, about Icelandic elves. Um, that's looking at Iceland, which is one of the most secularized areas in all of the world, but has a remarkably high belief in the existence of elves. And what happens is you have these secularized people who think we're reconnecting with sort of pre-Christian earth religion that's there, even though it's kind of like Druids in England who really don't have a lot of connection with Druids any more than Wiccans do with actual uh, witchcraft of the old sort. But it's this way of kind of projecting this intuitive sense that everybody has. The universe is freakier and more mysterious than it seems to be. And we know that. And so we're finding a way to categorize that. And elves don't demand a lot of you. Don't <laughs> blow up their homes on a, on a you know, building a road, th- those sorts right. of things. But there's not going to be take up your cross and follow me. Right. And so that then becomes an, an easy. No, uh, they'll actually make your shoes for you. They make work well, easier. You yes, know? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Um, I guess so. Well, and, and, Part of my obsession with these questions of secularization is the flip side of the coin, which is the way that religious organizations and Christians and churches have embraced a kind of secular imagination. So yes, they have their doctrine and their sort of base level of Christian practices, but part of the way I think about this is like, why do we do increasingly sort of spectacular things on our Sunday mornings? And I think it's an anxiety formed by a secular imagination that says, well, let's just make sure we're pushing the the gas a little harder to make sure people feel something before they go home. Because again, people want meaning, people want the experience. And do we have the faith and confidence that God is going to do through the simple things he's given us what he promises to do in his word. Yeah. And it's ultimately infantilizing. I mean, you, you and I were talking before we started recording of a megachurch pastor, I think this week, who took a goldfish out of a bowl and put it on the table in front of them and watched it flop around and say, look, the goldfish is about to die. And then reached in and said, oh, let's, let's put it back in the water. And when the audience applauded, said, see, you care more about this goldfish than you do about the people in your community who are dying and going to hell. And you just look at this and you say, who, who is showing up to listen to this every week when this, this really seems like a cheesy thing that the HR retreat at some corporate office might do as an icebreaker, except with more cruelty to animals, uh, <laughs> with instead what we actually have to give to people in bread and water and preached word and silence is actually 
what it is they're clamoring around to try to find in all of these mm-hmm. other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you first told me that story, I thought he probably read the first like paragraph of This Is Water by David Foster Wallace. Yes. Like, oh, I've got it. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. How do you think then when Christians are watching this? Because this all is of a piece to me, right? I think that's why we were texting about this earlier this week is this connection. Is there a pathway for Christians and for churches who've sort of been on the one hand drawn in this one direction or who are maybe attracted to the sort of quasi-New Age manifestation talk or horoscopes or whatever it is, how do we invite Christians in particular into the practices of the Christian faith that can actually scratch those itches? I think part of it is by redefining what expectations are. And so I think one of the issues is that there are there has been this sort of expectation that this service, this hour, needs to be life-changing. And mm-hmm. so you, we're, we're going to change your life with what you, with the insight you receive here or with the emotion that overwhelms you and the music or whatever it is, rather than teaching people the way God's grace actually usually works, which is hidden, invisible, long-term and seems ordinary, Uh, which is why when Jesus gave us signs of the kingdom, he didn't give us psychedelic mushrooms. He gave us (laughs) bread and wine, easily accessible things. And so I think if you show people what it is, the people who actually have grown in Christ, there are a few of them who can say, there is one sermon that changed my life, or there is one song that changed my life. But for most of them, for most of us, it's not one particular insight or experience, it is the totality of it, of hearing from God in these ways that you don't even notice what God's doing until later on. And I I think that stepping back from the spectacular and saying, this is how the glory of God is actually seen in the one who tabernacles among us, I think that that actually speaks to something that goes beyond the manipulative, goes beyond the consumer in ways that people are actually asking for it. It's funny, as you say that, I immediately started to think of the popularity of mindfulness meditation right now, which is a kind of spiritual practice. I mean, there's all kinds of people who practice it who are atheists and are not looking for transcendence necessarily, but it is a practice of silence, of withdrawal that has become very popular with people. And it it just strikes me that silence and solitude and silent prayer and breath prayers and these things that we live in in before God in a certain kind of silence, I mean, that's as old as the church. And it seems like a very clear place we can invite people in. There's a book called McMindfulness uh, that's about (laughs) uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist, uh, perplexity at uh, the way that mindfulness has been picked up uh, in the United States, especially coming out of a kind of West Coast spiritual practice that wants to take this little piece out of Buddhism and market it. And the Buddhists are saying, you can't have mindfulness if you don't have the rest of the package. And Mm -hmm. uh, reading this, yeah, we tend to do that with everything. Let's take this part of Christianity out, market it, but not have the cross-bearing, not have the repentance of sin, not have the quiet, ordinary sort of life. And 
ultimately people see that for what it is. It's multi-level right. marketing. I, I watched this little sliver of a documentary about one of these mindfulness gurus visiting with the Dalai Lama. And mm. they had several conversations. And one of them was around, you know, Buddhist actual belief about, you know, reincarnation and all the rest of it. And the guy's like, come on, Dalai Lama, do you really believe this stuff? And it's like, what a stupid question. <laughs> of course he believes this stuff. He thinks you're the weirdo because you want to <laughs> practice these things. About it. So, all right. Well, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. All right, to wrap up today, it is the end of an era. Dr. Phil, a.k.a. Phil McGraw, is ending his show after 22 years on the air. Most people are probably familiar with Dr. Phil. He showed up in pop culture on the Oprah Winfrey show in the 90s. Before that, he was a psychologist, but he primarily worked as a legal consultant, which is how she met him, mm -hmm. working on a lawsuit of some sort. So his, his show, he was on her show off and on for many years. He first appeared on his own show in 2002. At the height of the show, was getting 6 million viewers a day. He's had a string of scandals and lawsuits, but part of what's interesting to me today is he's leaving on his own terms. He's still getting 2 million viewers a day. And I wonder to some extent if him leaving is about kind of the changing times. But before we get to that, I grew up in a house where I saw Dr. Phil on Oprah when I'd go home. I grew up in a car where Dr. Laura Schlesinger was always on oh, yeah. the radio, who's another one of these sort of tough love, straight talkers. Mm -hmm. I have my take on why that stuff works and why audiences eat it up. I'm curious yeah. what you see in the work of Dr. Phil and why 5 million people a day wanted to watch that show. Well, I mean, you mentioned Dr. Laura, who I hadn't even thought about in forever. But right around that same time, Dr. Laura, Dr. Phil, Dave Ramsey in the evangelical Christian world and, and beyond that, but, but starting in the evangelical Christian world, uh, a friend of mine would always just remark at the people who would call in to Dr. Laura and say, I've been living with my boyfriend for however long, <laughs> and what do you think? Or the people that would call into Dave Ramsey and say, yeah, you know, I've got three credit cards maxed out and I'm wondering if I should get a fourth. And uh, my friend would say, have you never listened or watched these shows? Do you not know who you're talking to and what you're about to get? And something's right. kind of similar, I think, with Dr. Phil, with Judge Judy, with several other of these uh, figures, that that's actually part of the point is that there's a kind of catharsis that comes with here's somebody who's not holding back, who's just going to come in and say, how's that working for you? You know, Dr. Mm -hmm. Phil, those sorts of things. And it can give you the illusion of sort of a dad kind of nudging you into line and telling you, what are you doing? Sort of a drill sergeant, but without actual mandated change. <laughs> and I, th I think that's part of it is that there, it, th those sorts of shows, and I think something really similar was at work with, say, The Apprentice, which, of course, 
ultimately led to a president of the United States. But I think it gave you the ability both to sort of sit in the place of the person being fired and to sit in the place of the person doing the firing. So you could kind of take out your frustration and feel like you're getting a little bit of it, but in a way that doesn't cost. I mean, I think of uh, Seth Godin writes about uh, the fact that he was almost one of the panelists on Shark Tank. Hmm. And the reason he didn't do it is because they said, we need you to be the mean one. So essentially the (laughs) Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary character, we need you to be the mean one. And he just said, you know, I don't, that's not what I want to give my life to and who I actually want to become. But you have to have that mean one in order to really, I mean, there has to be a Simon Cowell uh, (laughs) for people to be able to identify with, I'm the one sitting there telling you off. And it works in terms of popular culture because I think there's a part of us that wants that. I totally agree with that. I think the other element of it is there's something deeply gratifying at being able to watch these stories or, you know, the Springer show was the worst example of this, of course, of being able to go, well, whatever else is wrong with my life. (laughs) 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 And I think that was attractive about all kinds of reality television. You know, when somebody I spoke to one time that was involved in the production of The the Amazing Race, they made sure they had at least one, if not two, really dysfunctional couples. And they made sure, as much as it was possible to control circumstances, to give them a miserable time on the show because they know that that's part of what drives the audience. There's a reason they put Johnny Fairplay, who everyone was going to hate, on Survivor. And it's the reason there's heels in WWE. There's something about a villain that we love. And what's interesting about Dr. Phil is there's an element, too, where he kind of plays the villain. He kind of plays the heel as well. When you feel some compassion for somebody who's suffering and has some addiction – And he gets on their case. He gets in their grill. It's a complex psychology in the success of these things. You know, now that you mention that, Dr. Phil actually has shown up in exactly that way in a sort of pastoral counseling situation that I've had with somebody who needed some help with a drinking problem. And he said, you know, I know maybe this is getting a little out of hand, but like there was a lady on Dr. Phil that would drink so much that she would show up at Sonic without any pants on. Uh, and and what she Gosh. said was, well, yeah, but you just roll down the window. They can't tell that I don't have pants on. And, you know, the bar that we're looking for here is not the drunk lady on Dr. Phil, whose mm. cup he picks up and tastes and it has vodka in it on the show. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's not the standard that we're trying to right. line up with. Here. But I think that actually does uh, work out that way. So well, at least I'm not. I'm not quite that bad. It also gets to the fact that we live in a culture that will always gravitate towards law over grace. Yeah. We want the crush of the law to, you know, like you were saying kind of at the beginning of that, that is a, I want the catharsis of, you know, look how terrible you are because there is something cathartic in a weird way of the condemnation itself. And grace in those moments doesn't necessarily feel great. This is one of the things that you see show up so often in churches that kind of boom for a while. It doesn't make for sustainable long-term ministry, but you can always draw a crowd with the person who will tell everybody what losers they are. Because you can have that person who wants to go in and hear that as a almost a, a paying of an indulgence and, and I can move on. 
and you can attract the kind of person that wishes he or she could stand up and tell everybody what losers they are and, uh, and sort of vent all of those frustrations. Both of those things can happen at once. And so a lot of people know that, and that's how they, that's how they build these ministries. Law just doesn't work that way though. And, uh, and unless it's undergirding gospel, it, it doesn't last and doesn't change anything. Do you think on the other side of what we've seen in the last, you know, post Me Too, because there's been a lot of controversy out of the Dr. Phil show since Me Too, yeah. both in the sense of some allegations of scandal, but also just the fact that it opens up the opportunity for people to say, well, I think they were getting people drunk backstage. It was a bullying yeah. environment, you know, these these kinds of scandals. Yeah. Do you think it's a sign of the times that a culture that seems to be that toxic is shutting down? Because that seems part and parcel with what the show is about. Do you think we'll see this sort of thing continually? Or is yeah. are we in a different moment now? You know, the carnival has to move on out of town after people realize <laughs> that they're they're <laughs> that they're being robbed. And so this has been an especially long-lasting carnival. But I think it's replaced by one that can give a similar illusion, but without having the years where all of those stories can be told. I don't know how truthful those sorts of allegations are or are not. But I think what is definitely truthful is that Dr. Phil is not actually caring for and shepherding these people. The people who go on will say, we see him right when the thing starts, and then we take a picture, and then we're sent out, and nobody ever, you know, sometimes we're referred to some kind of a clinic that has some financial connection with him, but that's mm -hmm. it. And so it's a way of exploiting the pain of those people. But for a lot of people, that's what this looks like. So, I mean, you can even see that with the number of people. There was a survey several years ago of who people wanted to see appointed to the United States Supreme Court. And Judge Judy was at the top of that list. And you realize, you know, you really? And it's because they're accustomed to seeing her come in and make these really so-called tough decisions. And so obviously that's what the law is. She ought to be there. And a lot of people watch Dr. Phil or shows like this and think, well, that's what life change is. And he's really changing their lives. You go and talk to them later and that's not what happens. It's, it's yeah. exploitation. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. Hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.